Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. I'm Victoria Hillman. Right, well, we're recording this episode fairly soon after the last one. Um, although you would have had it a bit more spaced out, I should imagine, by the time you're hearing this. So the downloads and stuff haven't gone up that much, only uh, just more than 15,000. That's still pretty good. So thanks again to everybody, as we always do. Yeah, always appreciate shares and listens. So you seen or been up to much since last time, Vic? Seen quite a bit, actually. I had a gatekeeper bus fly in my garden twice, actually probably different bus flies, to be fair. And I, we had a little mini kind of flying ant explosion. Um, yeah, same here a couple of days ago it's it was quite funny actually because I've been trying to sort out a few bits and pieces in the front garden and trying to pull up some of the the plants that had have grown in between the slabs and as I pulled one up uh, I started I actually saw all the the winged adults uh, mainly the males there was an odd odd winged female in there as well and I thought oh you know they're definitely getting ready yeah that's similar yeah and it's not the thing is I don't think the weather's actually been that great it's certainly not been that kind of warm humid and you know air that they, they really like and it's been really quite windy here as well so I was quite surprised I thought well you know nothing of it They'll, they all settled back down and didn't see any more of them went into the back garden to sort some stuff out and yeah they just started appearing and erupting out out of one of the nests in the back garden so I went out to the front and uh, for anyone that follows me on Instagram you would have seen my little Instagram live I did from you know my flying ants in my front garden it actually only lasted a few minutes and then they just disappeared again which is common they do disappear really quickly Uh, but I think as well being the front garden it doesn't actually get the sun after about 12 o'clock so (laughs) they kind of it's almost like they they came out and they started and then it's like they changed their mind (laughs) <laughs> and disappeared again <laughs> because they didn't very few of them actually took to the air which was interesting because i sat and watched them for a while and they didn't they just kind of came out crawled all over everything a handful took to the air and the rest of them just disappeared back into the ground again <laughs> um, which was really amusing to watch i've never seen them do that before uh so that was that was really interesting yeah and then other than that I was saying a couple of butterflies in the garden. My monster knapweed has finally started flowering. Oh, that's a good one. It's going over now. So, you know, the first two flowers are open on it. Unfortunately, I'm going to miss its main flowering um, period, I think. But, you know, once that goes over, it will be, well, I mean, knapweed produces a huge amount of, of uh, pollen and, and that for insects. It's fantastic for insects. Uh, so that will be crawling with insects. And then when it goes over, it will be covered in goldfinches. So it's kind of a win-win situation. And that's yeah. really about it, actually, I have to say, for me. So how about you, Neil? Anything exciting with you? I had some flying ants as well on the same day. So after us in episode 12 saying there's no such thing as flying ant day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, obviously, I, I think it's probably all the rain we had previously, didn't we? Mm. But yeah, we had a bit of flying ant day. I, was, I wasn't actually at home, but I found a load crawling around uh, in North Essex where I was. And then when I got home, I was showing my little girl a winged ant climbing up the wall. Yeah, so like I said, I popped up to North Essex jumped in the river stow with my waders on and an expensive camera in my hand and in between you know <laughs> not, not being too scared to move i don't drop it um i managed to get some slow motion footage of banner demoiselles which you can see on my various places online uh, my pom man ones i think they're under i also managed to get a nice picture of a horse fly a cleg which normally take off and try and bite me every time i try to photograph them so that's pretty cool loads of butterflies there um, nothing 
particularly rare, but it's lots of commas and red admirals and stuff. So I've got some slow motion of that I might share as well. And oh, what's it called? I forget what it's called. It's the not the wasp beetle, but it's like a larger longhorn beetle that looks a bit like a wasp. There's a couple of species. I, oh, I think I know the one you mean because I think I saw one yeah. the other week. I jokingly called it the false wasp beetle at one point. I did. I then actually found a common name for it. I'll try to remember what it is. Probably should have written that down and researched it before I. Thought, <laughs> I just thought of it when didn't think of the notes. Yeah. That's pretty much it, really. I, was, I briefly saw the spotty flycatcher. We didn't want to play that day. Um, but it's had a nice day just sort of wandering around, relaxing. Well, not relaxing. I was taking photos. Never relaxing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a few dragonflies and stuff. Uh, brown hawkers. My nemesis, the brown hawker, I saw about at least eight. And only one of them I saw perched. And what I was, I was walking along where they'd be. And one would fly about a metre in front of me before I saw it. And it happened like eight times. Just ridiculous. They, that, um, I've only ever photographed one in since 2007 that's 13 years of nature photography i've only managed to photograph one well and even that had a blade of grass in the way for along halfway along its body <laughs> blasted things they're kind of uh, like just nemesis nemesis just uh, we've all those. we've all got to have a nemesis species yeah green tiger beetles the other one which i mentioned in the last episode yeah so i don't know if it's something that you've noticed neil but i went for a, a walk with a really good friend uh the other day and went to a lovely old nature reserve. I haven't been for a couple of years, I have to admit. Uh, it's the first time I've been for a while. And last time I went, it was, there were banded demoiselles just, just everywhere. There's a, a beautiful river, you know, running, running through this nature reserve. And it was just, it was alive with all manner of different kinds of invertebrates. And we went out and okay, probably not the best day. It was a little bit overcast, a little bit muggy, but it wasn't raining. And it's still relatively bright and walking around. And we actually both commented on just, the complete lack of invertebrate life. I think we saw a couple of butterflies in four hours. And, you know, there, there's areas that are, you know, meadows. You've, you've got all, all this, you know, the, the grasses and wildflowers and everything. And there was just, I think we saw one skipper that was kind of tucked down because it was a little bit windy. And other than that, there were no grasshoppers, crickets. And you just couldn't hear anything. It was just... It was eerily quiet and we just didn't really see anything. And it was really quite surprising, actually, because it's this kind of follows on. And, you know, I mentioned it in in the previous episode. I, I did a walk at another reserve with a friend of mine. And again, we were just really surprised at the sheer lack of invertebrate life that is around right now. Yeah, there's something going on the last few years. I don't know if it's the dry weather. When I first moved into my house, my wife used to moan about the noise the crickets made keeping her up some nights and then it dawned on me last summer there's no crickets making a noise mm. in august i mean i'd be interested to see if they come out this year but yeah normally i hear them at night i was like oh yeah, it's interesting so i i heard them in june mm. but there's just been nothing now i am i am out this saturday to actually running a workshop this saturday finally Woo-hoo. Yeah. um and you know it is it's one of my forgotten little creatures workshops so we're specifically looking for mainly invertebrates actually on this one but this is a site that's really really you know last time i went there um a few weeks ago the noise from the grasshoppers and crickets was absolutely amazing so it'd be interesting to see what it's like on saturday actually though all the nettles and stuff seem to be devoid of insect life when i went for that walk last weekend but the, the, the meadows and the woodland clearings were okay there was a few bits around so I wasn't too disappointed, but I mean, it is. I suppose it is kind of yeah. But we should be getting the July stuff, shouldn't we? I yeah. mean, and there is always that little gap with the butterflies, isn't there? Some quite often, depending, especially if you've got an early spring and a, and you know a, a little bit of a lull before the summer. Sometimes you get a gap, but 
Yeah. Well, maybe the the the, the cold weather stopped a lot of the grasshoppers and stuff maturing quick enough, and they'll all come through a bit late. Maybe it's something we're just going to have to, you know, we're going to have to revisit this subject as we go through uh, oh, yeah. July and August, aren't we? I mean, there's, it's, most most of our listeners will be aware of the massive insect decline been in the news a few times. Anyway, that's a nice little uh, segue. Learned the word now <laughs> into the news. I think yes. It's all rubbish. <laughs> we, we used up all the good news in the last episode, uh, which was, was what about a week ago? Even that we were recording it. Uh, the Labagaira is still hanging around. Yes, it is actually, still here. That, lots of people have seen it, which is good. I saw someone moaning about people going to see it, who happened to be a gamekeeper, but uh, <laughs> which uh, is interesting because there was actually it made BBC News. You see that there's a lot of people are worried about the Labagaira because it's in the Peak District, mm. which is one of these hot spots for bird of prey persecution and that one person saying it's a good thing there's lots of people around because hopefully no one will dare do anything about it but i mean it shouldn't be a threat well too much of a threat to any game birds but i could see it by august being a pain because obviously it'll flush all their precious grouse out of you know they're trying to flush towards people that are too lazy to walk to shoot them but talking of grouse moors we can start with the there's been a buzzard shot and a goshawk caught in a cage and witness being killed and i'm going to give you three seconds at home to guess in what region of the country they that happened in. Have you guessed if it yet? If you got it. If you guess North Yorkshire, well done. You get nothing because it was obvious. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's always, well, it's not always North Yorkshire, but, you know, it literally is like the Bermuda Triangle for birds of prey, except I'm not the Bermuda Triangle. It's not a mystery what's happening. So there was a buzzard shot and the police have been asking for information but what's weird with a lot of these is they seem to wait quite a while to ask for information so it was discovered shut on sunday and they put the news out so it's sunday the 5th sorry and they put the news out on the 13th okay that's not too bad but some of them they wait months before asking for information and you know if there was a tourist in the area that saw something they're gonna long forgotten what they saw or might not hear the news and the goshawk just to give you the full details in gofland so they filmed it and they still have to say um, appeared to be killed so there's a apparently the footage shows i can't find an actual copy of the footage on may the 2nd so this one's one where they waited ages to release it there's a picture here on the news story of a goshawk sitting in the trap and a man wearing a mask obviously up to nothing um guilty wearing a mask uh, came. I'm not talking about a face mask. I'm talking about uh, covering his face. I was about entirely. to say, you know, we're, yeah. we're, you know, we've all got to wear masks when we're around about in shops and stuff. So, <laughs> so out there, and they they walk out and they clearly shoot it. Yeah, and people are asking questions. It's on someone's land. The landowner must have known it was there, or the gamekeeper at least, you know. But as usual, there'll be no evidence, or they'll they'll find some evidence and they'll get a slap on the wrist and nothing will happen until they start introducing vicarious liability for the landowners. There we go. And I have to say, we don't always include the news stories of birds of prey being shot because the whole podcast will be birds of prey shot this week section. I think we'd have to do, wouldn't we? Well, we did actually say we were going to do a special episode yeah. on that, didn't we? We were going to do a special episode on bird of prey persecution anyway. So we would cover this in a lot more detail Yeah. Um, because there's so much to cover that we just think it's not something we could necessarily cover just in a new section. No, it's just a big, a big topic, and we might have to get someone on to discuss it further. Although I'm, yeah. I'm depressingly well read on it. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> talking of depressing, there's been a flood of stories of dogs attacking wildlife. I think partly is people not travelling as far to walk their dogs, they're just walking around nature reserves and not really understanding. But a lot of it is people just with dogs, just not giving a word. I can't say. Yes, <laughs> Again. and 
there was one local to me, the local one hospital, have four fawns, and it wasn't quite clear if they're all victims of dog attacks, but one of them at least was a fawn that got left behind by the mum because in the act of giving birth a dog started chasing her she didn't even have time to lick it clean so it still had all the afterbirth all over it when they collected it oh jeez it's just disgusting and even worse as oh arguably as bad if not worse someone was filming a group of three dog walkers with about 10 dogs walking on the edge of a fleet you know a big area of water with islands in the middle and soon after that he films a spaniel swimming across all the way to the island flushes a great bit of grebe off the nest and when it fouls to catch it it turns around and starts munching all the eggs and there's been a plethora of them there's been swans attacked and killed cygnets being killed and yeah they're just yes and and just to be clear i'm not going to go all dog owners here because a lot of dog owners are very good i am oh, so i'm friends with dog owners makes sounds like a, a cop-out but i am literally i'm friends with dog owners people that train dogs that are they're better trained than I am, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I've got uh, one of my friends. We did a, a pond dip on the pond dipping with him, and he told the dog to sit down. And 20 minutes later, we thought, "Oh, where's the dog?" Still sat exactly where it was told, on a platform next to a pond, and it's a Labrador, <laughs> which just wants to jump in the pond. Bless it, beautiful thing. It can sniff out pine mites and otters. It's an amazing dog. I tried to kidnap her, but he wouldn't let me. And you clearly didn't try hard enough. No, I didn't. I really should have. Uh, beautiful dog, and. Even he, with this dog, when we walked to a deer park, put it on a lead. Because you can never 100% trust a dog. And and we'll have to do a podcast on this topic as well. There's uh, at least two studies, and I need to track them down. I have one of them on my hard drive somewhere, that have shown that a dog, even on the lead next to its owner, will flush more wildlife. They basically invoke a predator response than a human on its own. And then there's the added factor that a dog off the lead can run across sort of ditches and lakes that, he, apart from the most determined human being, will not cross. The uh, what, did I, what did I call it? The circle of disturbance I once tried to explain to someone high up who just didn't want to know because he owned a dog. That's a whole story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the depressing news out the window. Out the window? That's a bad, that's a bad <laughs> choice. Out the way. No, I, I think out I looked at the window as I said it. It's probably why I said out the window. Sorry, there's not any much better news. Um, there's sure to be lots of good bird breeding stories coming out in the news shortly. Hopefully now that's all fledging and stuff. Yeah. yeah fingers crossed for that. Oh, a lot of reserves are opening up now that have been closed for various reasons. Usually because they're breeding birds on the past. Dungeness has partly opened. Uh, Rain and Marshes is opening. Yeah, so fingers yeah, starting th- up again. I, I think all the reserves near me are now pretty much you know open up again and actually you know it's worth checking because if you are out and about and you know please do go and enjoy our wildlife responsibly mm. you know and you see some amazing stuff out there um a lot of the toilets are starting to reopen now but a lot of the buildings and that uh like the welcome buildings and stuff still aren't opening so it's always worth checking but you know it looks like things are kind of opening up and like neil said hopefully there'll be good news stories to come as as we see what's what's bred and what's done really well this year as as things start to fledge and, and we get those reports coming in. Now, we haven't actually mentioned what the topic is going to be, although you probably would have read it in the, when you clicked the, <laughs> the file on this. We thought, as it's coming up to the summer holidays, in fact, by the time we release this, it will be the summer holidays. Certainly in Scotland, it's already the summer holidays in Scotland, actually, isn't it? But certainly yeah. in England and Wales. And now we've got a bit of freedom in all the home countries, I think, now. Some of you will be heading to the beach, where, as everyone goes to the beach for, is rock pooling. Apparently some people do something called sunbathing. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I always say straight for rock pools if I wasn't building a sandcastle, and that was in my adult years. <laughs> this is the person that who's one of their modules. One, their practical for one of their modules was basically let's go and spend the entire day rock pooling on the North Wales coast. Wow, awesome. you know, 
can't really beat that for a <laughs> yes. for practical. Um, I was saying I nearly mentioned I'll mention it now in the Nick Baker episode. There's a fish we mentioned out called the clingfish, and it, it's sometimes known as a Cornish sucker. It's basically a sucker fish, which I'll talk about a bit more later. And he put a picture up in a talk. This was before he knew who I was. Obviously, I knew who he was. And there was a, a young lad that kept answering all the questions, so I didn't put my hand up. And he didn't know the answer to this. He said, I bet no one knows what this is. And I put my hand up and said, Cornish sucker. And he, <laughs> he was a bit stumped for about a few seconds because he wasn't expecting <laughs> to have a complete nerd that had spent every summer in Cornwall trying to find one <laughs> in the audience. Um, and then it, and then he thought, and he went, oh, I think you've been to one of my talks before. But I hadn't. I have to bring that with him at some point. <laughs> But yes, but rock pools. Now, I believe Vic's going to start with well, a bit about the environment itself and how extreme it is. Yeah, because it is actually a really interesting area. So rock pools, uh, they're a feature on more kind of structured and sloping rocky shores of the intertidal zone. So it is technically a marine environment, and but they're highly dynamic, massively productive micro habitats, and they can contain an astonishing diverse range of plant invertebrate and fish species you know i know when we were rock pooling as part of my degree it was a science degree i did zoology with marine zoology it was a genuine <laughs> practical one of the groups actually found an octopus as well wow. so that was pretty cool so you know you you never know what you might find in some of the bigger rock pools it is a tough environment to live in i'm going to basically talk about the physiochemical factors and these are the temperature the ph salinity dissolved oxygen and carbon dioxide levels that really kind of I guess they shape the rock pools and the life that that lives in them and the rock pools themselves are actually really uh, kind of driven by you know the tides and this truck kind of drives the assemblage structure and composition of what you can find in them as well so just before I go on a little bit more detail into that so we have obviously we have spring tides and neap tides Spring tides happen around about where well, it's new moon and full moon and the neap tides happen in between. And the spring tides, actually, we have they have a large tidal range. So you get a high, high tide and a low, low tide, whereas the neap tides, that tidal range is actually much smaller. So it, it doesn't change as much. So generally speaking, the larger pools, so some of those really, really big ones that you find, they're actually less prone to the the bigger fluctuations in temperature and salinity and the other factors, which means they're able to support more species, including some that are actually only able to tolerate narrower ranges of environmental conditions. Whereas the smaller pools, they are going to experience much bigger fluctuations because they're they're just much, much smaller. There's a lot less water in them. So the tides themselves, they influence life in the intertidal zone. You know, as I said, it's it's the difference between that big tidal range and that small tidal range. So we'll start with temperature. Obviously, we have our seasons anyway. We have summer, winter, spring and autumn. And in summer, strong sunshine can actually cause the temperature to raise well above the normal limits within a rock pool. And this can be up to about 25 to 30 degrees centigrade. Now, if you imagine that, that's absolutely crazy to think that that's how hot the water could get in a rock pool but if you think to some of the the summers that we've had where we've had you know it's been like high 20s low 30s continually day in day out you know it's you can imagine what happens to these rock pools it's not just extreme in in the summer in the winter time you can possibly get extreme so when we have if we have a really really cold storm um, blowing something like the beast from the east that we had a few years ago some of the more exposed ones are actually a chance of freezing as well so you've got some massive massive changes there Salinity, obviously we're talking about a marine environment. It is salt water. 
evaporation in the summer can actually cause the salinity to increase and then it can actually decrease during heavy persistent rain. So if we get long periods of like heavy persistent rain, it can actually cause the salinity levels to decrease. So you've got quite a bit of fluctuation there and that can change week on week. I mean, this is the UK. One minute you can have mm -hmm. glorious sunshine and the next minute get like three months of rain. On top of that, you've got oxygen. So is, this is like the dissolved oxygen levels within the water itself. And these can actually reach hypoxic levels within a few hours in some of those rock pools. So, yeah, overall, we're talking about really, really extreme environments. Uh, but what about light? So, you know, it, it's it's on the coast. It's going to be a pretty, pretty bright area anyway. So bright light increases the photosynthesis of some of the algal vegetation, particularly in the smaller pools. And this causes the oxygen levels to rise. It removes the CO2 and actually raises the pH level. On the other side of things, if you get bacterial decomposition happening in these pools, you can get decreases in the O2 levels, increases in carbon dioxide, and this actually reduces the pH level. So it's all very much interlinked. It's not temperature as one, salinity as another, you know, oxygen as another, pH as another. They all are very, very much closely interlinked with each other. So moving away from those kind of particular physiochemical factors, you know, what about some of the other things? What about immersion? So species can utilize oxygen dissolved in seawater for respiration, whereas other species actually breathe air. You've got a real mix. And Neil's actually going to go into more detail on the on the amazing critters you can find on the seashore. Some of these species have evolved from landforms and spread to the intertidal zone. And other species have actually evolved from marine forms and have adapted to living in this, these kind of intertidal zones. But immersion and exposure can actually cut off essential supply of of air and can be fatal to some species as well. So this is actually going to affect where different species are found within that intertidal zone, within the rock pool areas, and whether some are only found in larger pools or smaller pools. And, um, you know, those that can actually sustain being basically exposed for long period. But away from this, there's actually another risk for a lot of this wildlife, predation. So in rock pools, these species are exposed to not one set of predators, but two. Because, you know, when they're submerged, they, they have to contend with marine predators. And when they're exposed, they have land and air predators as well. So, you know, these, these poor creatures really, I mean, they're living in probably one of the harshest environments they could probably pick, really. It is definitely a fascinating area to go and check out. And I think, Neil, you're going to kind of go into a bit more detail on some of the stuff that you can find there. Now, obviously, we can't cover everything. We haven't got all night. <laughs> yeah. or or the rest of the week but Niels I think you've just picked out you know some some of the most more commonly seen ones yeah I mean it was hard to pick really I, in the end I just sort of stopped myself from going on digging through all the things I probably should mention a lot of this stuff comes from Julie Hatcher and Steve Chuella's book The Essential Guide to Rockboarding which is a really well made book I have to say available from all good bookstores so I guess I'll start with the good old shore crab the green shore crab this is the one you catch usually crabbing from your harbors and looking for crabs in your rock pools and they're very adaptable you, you can find them though we're functioning in rock pools tonight i've found them in salt marsh and halfway up estuaries and stuff like that so they're tough little critters the velvet swimming crab which is sort of has a velvety hair on it it's got a bit of a 
purpley colour to it and bright red eyes. And these are aggressive little watsits if you find them. You can identify <laughs> them by the fact that they go for you sometimes. I've, I've caught one. But they're, they're pretty good swimmers. They, they've got like paddle-like back legs. I know most crabs have something like that, but they have some proper sort of paddles going on there. And there's a few other swimming crabs as well. Um, staying with the crustaceans, you've got the good old prawns and shrimps. I don't know if, if you've tried this, Vic. If you take your socks off, and sit your bare feet in a rock hall for a bit. The prawns will come and pick your dead skin off it and get free manicure, which is quite fun. Can um, I honestly say I have not tried that, no. It's quite <laughs> cool, actually. I, I, have, I have tried it. I've, I don't know if you've done, I've done it by accident as a kid. You're walking through barefoot and there's this, you think, what's that? There's a shrimp picking at your foot, which is quite cool. <laughs> but in the more sort of sandy patches, the beaches I used to go weren't full rocky shores. They had sort of, sort of on the edge of a sandy beach. If you, especially if you get one of these sort of sandbars on the beach that come out of the rock pools and you get like a, a long pool come out of the rocks, you get the brown shrimps. So I used to call them sand shrimps. They've got this beautiful mottled pattern. You can't see them until they move. The camouflage is so good. They look like a load of sand. So whereas prawns are flattened and can dig into the sediment a little bit where there is some sediment, now these guys can't. They're the wrong shape. So they just rely on their camouflage. And they literally do look like a shrimp shaped bit of sand sometimes <laughs> fantastic you can see like grains on them it's really cool you've also got hermit crabs which aren't true crabs and of course they have no hard shell so that's why they have a shell I mean, most people should listen probably know hermit crabs and they tend to get like a whelk shell or something like that uh, a sea snail shell of some sort and live in it but as they grow they have to swap for bigger shells and they'll wrestle them off each other and stuff like that it's quite interesting little things and staying with crustaceans something a lot of people don't realize are crustaceans are barnacles now long ago in their evolution they would have been like a sort of shrimpy sort of that's the sort of standard crustacean shape i guess (laughs) a sort of shrimpy type thing and for whatever reason for evolution they ended up sticking their body and head to a rock and turning their legs into filter feeding arms so when we see them at low tide there's like a, a shield shape over the top and that opens up and these little sort of feathery like legs come out and start waving about in the water and filter particles out. And they're quite useful on the seashore because you can sort of use it to map where the high and low tide mark is. Because certain species like to be covered most of the time and they're down near the low tide mark on the lower shore. And you get certain that live in almost basically just a splash zone. So only get covered in spring tides and stuff. And they're yeah, tough little creatures. But of course, being stuck to a rock presents a bit of a problem when you're trying to mate and they've come up the mouths are kind of a rather unique situation um they have the longest penis relative to body size there's a few animals that compete for this but it's quite often quoted and literally they sort of stick it out and sort of feel around with it looking for females to mate with nearby which is <laughs> quite an, a, you know yes it's nature but it's still amusing but there's an even weirder thing with barnacles there's a barnacle that's a parasite of crabs now i don't mean the ones that stick on the back of them sometimes it lives under the town now if you lift up a crab you can see its towel bent under its body, sort of partway between the rear legs. So that's that's actually its towel that's bent round. So if you think of the shape of a lobster, if you bent its towel underneath, it'd end up being looking vaguely like a crab. If the towel was smaller, obviously. And that is where the female stores her eggs. Now, this parasitic barnacle will go under there and take the place of where the eggs will be. So they can't molt or breed, obviously. They affect the males to make them act like females so they can have a home, mess with its hormones and stuff. Moving on to another group, the, the sea anemones. So these are related to jellyfish and sea gooseberries and like, comb jellies is a better known and all that sort of group and corals. And sea anemones you find stuck to the rock. They can slide around a little bit and they can just let go and find other places. Now, they're kind of are jellyfish that are stuck to a rock 
upside down with their tentacles outwards so when a small fish or shrimp swims past the tentacles sting just like on a jellyfish and they pull it into their mouth in the middle and being nidarians like jellyfish they don't have an anus so everything that they don't digest gets spat out again at the end and when the tide goes down they retract in you get these usually red blobs of their bead and enemies which is the, probably the most common one i reckon on rocky shores and you just see the sort of just above the rock pools usually i find loads of these red blobs just waiting for the tide to come in of course if they're in the rock pool they could be open but if you spook them they'll quickly shrivel back up but something kind of red which is quite cool is unusually for anemones beetle anemones give birth to fully formed young and they basically sort to give birth to them by spitting them out their mouth which is quite <laughs> quite cool i quite like that and you've got the closely related strawberry anemone which when the tentacles out looks pretty similar but when it shrinks back in the blob has all little yellow dots make it look like a strawberry which is rather cool and another thing that's in steve's book which i did not know or steve and uh, judy's book i should say um if you take a uv torch out of you at night they actually glow a lot of them because they have a protein in them to protect themselves from sunlight and it glows under uv light i did know that because i think we actually tried that at university did it work? I don't remember. It was a long time ago. And <laughs> a, lot, a lot of these things, like the fungi that glow, uh, some fungi actually glow uh, in the UV light. Mm. It has to be so dark for you to see it and get your eyes in. Now, moving on to mollusks. Now, obviously, you have the bivalves, like mussels and all that kind of stuff that attach to rocks. You, on the uh, In the lower end, you might be lucky enough to find a scallop, which are seashells that can swim by clapping their shells together and have a row of eyes along the edge, which is kind of creepy. That's <laughs> me. I'm going to start with the sea slugs, um, which are pretty cool things. Yeah. yeah, they can be quite pretty. The one I'm most familiar with is the sea hare, which I found in Pembrokeshire a few years ago. They can get big, they can get a foot long, 30 metres long, and they come into the shore, the, the tidal areas, to lay their eggs in rock pools. And if you time it just right in the right areas, you can find them everywhere. But the green elysia was the one I wanted to talk about. This is about three centimetres long, and it's green and lives in green areas. So it's quite hard to find. But what they do is they go along, and they eat algae, but when they digest them, they keep the chloroplast. Now, chloroplast is the bit of the plants and algae that does photosynthesis to make food. And they incorporate it into their tissue, and you have a photosynthetic animal. So this isn't like with hydras and coral, where they have symbiotic algae living in them. They are actually, they've nicked the chloroplast, but they are actually doing the photosynthesis themselves. And it's one of the few animals that can do photosynthesis and make their own food which is really rather cool they still eat algae though uh, for food too steve put it in his book but i have read it somewhere else that it's being referred to as the solar powered sea slug which is quite <laughs> accurate really anyone's been to the seashore has probably seen periwinkles and whelk shells a whelk are quite cool they have a drill-like tongue to drill through bivalves and eat the animal inside which is a mollusk too but something that surprised me when i but it's quite obvious when you think about it is a limpet is not a bivalve seashell it's actually a snail or a gastropod to give its proper name it's only got one shell but it's obviously become that weird conical shape limpets are really cool i do like limpets you always find a few shells they quite often have a barnacle on them you always read the experiments where they fence off a one meter area from limpets or cage it off and the seaweed goes nuts because they are that much of an important grazing on the seashore without limpets you the whole rocks would be covered in seaweed basically in algae but limpets are important grades they're the sheep of the seashore you might say i have to admit we we didn't do it because we did a i did a lot of uh, seashore ecology and and that as part of my degree and and we didn't do that one one of the experiments me we had to do was measuring the growth rate of kelp oh joy and this means punching holes in kelp in the menai straits at <laughs> eight o'clock in the evening on a cold <laughs> wet miserable 
day. Oh, nice. So, yeah, there were more exciting options, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, when I did my marine biology course, it was like uh, one for algae and seaweed, which is interesting because seaweed is actually a type of algae. Arguably, it's sort of midway between the green slime algae and terrestrial plants like mosses and so on. I think uh, is it Ulva, the sea lettuce, is mm. often credited as sort of related to the ancestral true plants, you might say. But going back to limpets... Now, limpets, as we mentioned, feed on algae and seaweed, and they do that with a radula, which is the sort of sharp blade on its tongue, I suppose is the best way of putting it, not in the same way we've got a tongue. And it's been tested, this radula, the material it's made of, as one of the strongest substances in nature, which is quite impressive. If you think you're scraping stuff off rocks, then it's going to be pretty strong, isn't it? Now, what they do is, when a tide comes in, they go off and explore their little patch, grazing it for algae and seaweed and whatever, and then they'll come back to the exact same spot because over the time they have sort of wiggled their shell every time they've come in and they've worn a limpet shaped groove in the rock so they can get a better grip which is why animals that try and eat them really have to really struggle to get them off basically and if you want to harvest them you have to take a knife and get underneath it and flip them off and stuff yeah they're amazing little things they are really cool mm, I, like them. I mean there's so many other sea snails i could talk about but we've only got so I long i think that's a really good one as well there, there is some video out there some time lapse mm. oh jack burke has done a few on you know where you see them and you see them the way they move around and that over time and then come back to them basically like home back to this this one spot so yeah they're really cool one i had to mention was the sea squirts i never found them myself but i found them they are a weird looking animal they're basically a jelly bag with one tube that sucks in and one tube that sucks out and they filter out particles from the water and as adults they're reasonably interesting my uh, marine biology teacher took great pleasure in showing us that if you apply a little bit of pressure they squirt water out and it can go a few meters across the class do you know what i think every marine biology yeah, uh, lecturer has done that that's like their favourite thing. It's a bit like it talking is. about... But if you're a freshwater college, you have to talk about dragonflies breathing through their bum. Yeah. I think it's a bit, a bit like their equivalent. But <laughs> where sea squirts are really interesting... Do you know about their larvae, Vic? Did you do this in your course? Oh, possibly. It was a long time their ago. Their larvae <laughs> look eerily similar to like a very simplistic tadpole. So they've got no eye... Well, not any complicated eyes. But they have a thing called a notochord, which is the first part of a vertebrate or a backbone and they reckon all vertebrates that's fish reptiles amphibians mammals including us birds are basically neotenous or baby sea squirts that have never grew up and evolved into all of us which is quite amazing when you think about it so basically <laughs> sea squirts that never grew up which is uh, really quite cool but it, honestly if you look at a if you go online and have a look put in larval sea squirt and some diagrams should come up and I think it's a good one on wikipedia and it just looks like it's like a primitive vertebrate you look at the earliest vertebrates in the fossil record and it's quite similar it's quite oh look at lampreys and hagfish and lancelet echinoderms now kind of so that sea urchins which are really cool they go around very important grazers of algae and seaweed but they most of them tend to be a bit further offshore but you get the odd one in there and sea cucumbers which are just bags of jelly fleshy stuff <laughs> that that when when some of them when panicked will squirt out their stomach but i'm going to concentrate on the good old starfish the classic starfish that we all know of they're quite famous for if they drop a leg or it gets bitten off they can regrow the leg and you quite often find one with like one arm short on the others but what i find amazing is if you get a big enough leg with enough mass in it they'll regrow the body and then the legs and my dad told me a story of how I think it's oyster fishermen used to go along cutting up the starfish and throwing them overboard if they found any <laughs> just making more starfish <laughs> obviously they're less likely to survive if they've been chopped up in right conditions as they grow into lots of starfish think the magician's broom in fantasia rather like flatworms in that way i suppose uh, but yeah. they're really cool their feeding is 
I mean, you must know this, Vic. They go up to something like a muscle, which is a classic prey in a textbook. Mm. Use all those suckery legs. So they've got hydraulic power, basically, in their bodies. Mm. So they pump water around. They've got all these suckery feet. And they use the strength of hydraulics, basically, to prise open the muscle shell, which is really strong. And muscle's tendons are set. So when they die, the shell stays shut. That's how strong it is. And the muscles pull it shut as well if they're under attack. And they prise it open just enough to squeeze their stomach into the inside of the bivalve shell. And of course, then they can get to all the soft body parts and start digesting it. And then eventually get into it easier as they kill it. But... (laughs) to invert their stomach into their throat oh just totally it's amazing though isn't it it's just they must be the most alien animal because although arthropods and stuff you can kind of see legs and body parts where echinoderms just sort of went yes sod the rest of you we're going off on our own tangent you know it's just although weirdly i think they're more closely related to sea squirts than arthropods weird things echinoderms amazing animals but weirdly echinoderms probably the one group that never colonized fresh water or land in any way but there we go because normally you get like one from each group, one's like woodlouse, there's a crustacean that came on land, isn't it? Yeah. But I couldn't talk about rock pulling without talking about fish. And perhaps not the most interesting and exciting, but I've got to mention Blennies, and in particular the Shanny, which if you've been rock pulling, you've probably caught at some point. And there's loads of gobies and different Blennies, but I'll just concentrate on the Shanny. Got brilliant camouflage got that long body a long dorsal fin swim almost ill like we're not quite long enough to do that they've got strong teeth which they can crush barnacles with and other small crustaceans eat a bit of algae a few other creatures as well they can survive out of water if they're under a rock so don't dry out they can actually breathe air they can gulp air if the oxygen level gets too low in rock pools we spoke about earlier and they prefer to stay in the rock pools so as vic mentioned there's predators in the sea and on the land but a lot of these creatures in rock pools are staying in the rock pool because there's lots of big fish that can find them in the sea and okay there's birds on the land that might find them but there's less big predators in the water with them so they're in theory a bit safer there but there's some really cool fish i've mentioned the cling fish already or the suckers they have cool sucker their fins underneath their body have turned into suckers so they can hang on to the rocks when the waves come crashing in and to some degree i suppose to stop them being pulled off by predators and some of them amazingly well camouflaged they just blend into the rock but there's a weird looking fish called a lump sucker which is sort of like a flattened ball shape most people would have seen them being eaten by otters more than anything else i think they're popular food for them so they live out in the sea but they come up in spring to breed the female lays some eggs and the male fertilizes them and then she naffs off and the male stays and guards the eggs naffs off that scientific term there yeah. uh, and he'll, he'll stay with them over a month guarding them so he'll chase off predators fan them with his tail kind of a bit like a stickleback uh, keep them oxygenated and of course they, they have a sucker as well so they can hang on when the waves come crashing in so rather cool little things actually but there's a whole ecosystem right at the top of the shore the splash zone they call it and there you might find the sea slater, which is basically a three centimetre long woodlouse that can tolerate being splashed by the sea. But it can't survive underwater, so it has to hide away and come out when it's, the sea's gone out. And it usually comes out at night, because obviously it could dry. It still needs to be damp, but it can't breathe underwater, like most woodlice, really. You also might find in that area a thing called a sea bristle towel. And bristle towels are basically what a, a silverfish, the things you get running around in your butt. Well, maybe not modern day so much, but get running around in damp areas like bathrooms in houses. Yeah, they'll live under just above the high water marks, just above where the tide comes up to, hiding crevices and stuff. So sometimes we're in the, what's called the strand line. So that's sort of on the beach where it marks where that water gets highest and it leaves all like the driftwood and morsels to eat. And you can find uh, sandhoppers, which are a type of amphipod there as well. You might know as freshwater shrimps if you're a pond dipper. It's the same group as them. But going back to the bristle tails, so bristle tails and silverfish are the most primitive group of insects. So the only group that the adults at no point evolved wings. So things like fleas and stuff have lost the wings, but 
this group is before mayflies and dragonflies evolved and then evolved into all the other winged groups and yeah they just hang around eating algae lichen whatever they can find really growing on the rocks and you read all the books it says only come out at night and stuff like that but i know a patch of seawall in Lou where there's always loads of them basically there's a, a seepage from the ground i think it's like an underground stream coming out of the cliff coming out through the harbour wall and because it's damp there they're always there which is rather cool and it's a bit of a sheltered spot too but i'm now going to talk about some creatures that live in the tidal zone that you might be quite surprised about because they're generally regarded as terrestrial species so we have there's a few springtail species particularly the marine springtail and it's quite clever it has a, a covering of hydrophobic hair so they repel water which traps an air bubble and waterproofs it against the sea and they live in the tidal zone so when the tide comes in every day they tend to tuck themselves away they've done experiments with the marine springtail that's anareda maritime and that can survive being submerged for two days which is quite impressive for a land animal really and they just feed on sort of all the dead stuff that washes up and, and a bit of vegetable matter dead barnacles you quite often find them inside dead barnacles apparently so cool, I, I, i've seen them quite often like on some of the rock pools just like on that surface of the water but they raft together as well so you'll see like and they're fascinating to watch because they just seem to like go off in different directions and then all come back together and then disappear off and come back together again they're they're fascinating little things to watch they really are and springtails if you're not familiar with the group are these tiny little things they've got six legs but they're hexapods not true insects so they're related to insects but they're not but they're one of the main characterizing features is they have two prongs at the back of their abdomen that can spring and fly them through the air except these ones don't and they just crawl around on the surface now another less well-known group as well an arachnid it's called a pseudoscorpion. Now, a pseudoscorpion is these tiny little arachnids, generally a few millimetres long at most. I think the biggest one's like a centimetre long. And if you imagine a scorpion, but get rid of the tail, give it a slightly more circular than elongated body, generally, or sometimes a elongated as well, but and make it really, really tiny. And that's basically what a pseudoscorpion looks like, hence pseudoscorpion, which means fake scorpion. But they have venomous claws, at least some species do. But there's one species that lives below the high tide mark. So where, as I mentioned, where the tide comes in, it runs around feeding on those springtails we've mentioned and other small inverts. And what it does is when the tide starts to come in, it will dive into sort of a muddy crevice between the rocks where it, there's like an air bubble forms. When the tide comes in, obviously, if there's a bit that's tucked upwards, the sea water won't be able to get in without pushing all the air out. So it hides in this air pocket and then waits for the tide to go out. Yeah, they just come out and feed when that happens. But there's other creatures do that. So some mites do a similar thing. There's one species of true bug, which I'm not even going to attempt the species name of. And true bugs are the group that includes aphids, shell bugs and that sort of thing. And water boatmen, you might be familiar with if you're Pond Dipper. And that, again, lives in crevices in the intertidal zone. But it also has the fine hairs like the springtail, so it can trap a bubble of air if it does get flooded out. So that's pretty cool. But it's, it's the only true bug on British shores that can live in a truly marine environment. And it's also a centipede that's <laughs> the same as well. So it seems to be sort of the odd one from the land-winning groups have managed to invade this habitat, which is really quite cool. So a marine centipede, it's called. Orange like a normal centipede. It looks slightly redder than the ones I'm familiar with. And it even make its nest with babies in the intertidal zone and it basically waits for the tide to go out and it goes around hunting all these pseudoscorpions and springtails and other marine things that come in yeah that's just the briefest brief introduction to the amazing creatures found in rock pools which should be a surprise i like because they're basically marine ponds and they're, they're just amazing though aren't they i mean you mm. think the amount of life that that actually even a small rock pool can hold is just incredible and the variety of life of, as well oh yeah, you yeah know, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't touched on sponges on bryozoan and there's so many other fishes loads of crustaceans flatworms worms all the animal worms i haven't even touched on those there's just yeah there's I mean, so many there is just so much life in there so it's yeah. you know i mean 
but hopefully <laughs> it's a good introduction i think for yeah, the, the different things that you can yeah i mean we'll, we'll finish with a, a few safety warnings i suppose just make sure you check the tide yes i mean the, uh, actually i mean the one thing that we always said when we were you know sorting out our rock pool rock pooling trips uh, at uni was the best time to go is on spring tides yeah uh, this is the new moon and the full moon so you've got two times a month um, yeah. basically but it's a few days either side of that as well so it doesn't yeah. just so you don't just suddenly have a, a spring tide you've got the days yeah. either side of that but this is when the rock pools are going to be exposed for longer so yeah. you've got longer to go and explore them yeah and there's there's certain days of the year where you have to check the tide tables that it'll go down even lower than the average spring tide as well where you'll get things that are only shown sort of a few times a year which have a bit more yeah. interesting stuff uh, from a safety point of view always best to go with more than one person just in case and let someone know where you're going except blah, blah 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 all that stuff but yeah do keep an eye on the tide it's very easy to get engrossed in in a rock pool and not, yes. not, not notice the huge sea coming up behind you we've all been there and yeah a few safe things for the creatures now these creatures are quite hardy as we've mentioned what they've got, they've got to survive but they especially from the lower shore some of them aren't that hardy and if you put them in a tank which is going to heat up a lot quicker than a pool. You've got to be careful to so try and keep them in the shade. It's a bit hard. Try and put them back where you found them, the same pool, because some of them, like the Blennies, have their own territory in a pool. And a lot of the creatures have particular environmental preferences and like to be in that area of the shore. And interestingly, actually, you know, two pools that can be quite close together can actually oh, yeah. have very different compositions and makeup. So, yeah, it, it's this is why it's so important they go back in the same pool that you found them in. I've already recommended Steve's book. There's a few other books out there. There's a Phillips one, which is quite good. I believe the Collins one's quite good. The photo guide, I haven't got that one, though, so I couldn't really comment on that. So there's some good books out there. None of them are completely comprehensive, but I've heard Steve Trello and Julie Hatcher's one is pretty good. And it's obviously a, a project of love. Really, really good photos in it. Tempted to try some creatures in a similar style to what he's done he's done a black background on a lot of them we haven't touched on the birds like the oyster catchers and stuff but i thought we'd save wading birds for another episode yeah yeah i think we've basically covered all the basics yeah equipment i would recommend getting hold of a decent sized sort of aquarium net pond dipping nets tend to be too big but you get these the bigger ones you buy in the aquarium shop rather than the cheap plastic ones that break and then you throw them away and a complete waste of money and resources you know in terms of wasting plastic on the planet get one of the aquarium net from your local fish shops for your local fish shop as well it's always good having a few buckets good a white bucket and a white pond dipping tray is quite handy and have an aquarium as well obviously try and keep it shaded and stuff and something to shade them is usually quite good as well and walking around <laughs> with barnacles i don't recommend going barefoot i used to do it no. all the time a decent pair of like proper sandals not like flippy flop ones with decent grip on the bottom or i started an old pair of trainers is the best thing i find that you don't mind getting ruined and just walk through the pools and get wet and stuff that way and then it doesn't matter and avoid the green green is slippy <laughs> yes just i was about to say just be really careful when you're out there because yeah. some of the rock pools the surface is getting to them and on the edges can be incredibly slippery i mean i found out to my detriment when i actually slipped and fell in a rock pool and gashed my leg open it's my still there you know so it's do be really really careful when you're out and, and kind of walking and just you know obviously be careful where you're putting your feet as well because you never know what you might tread on and yeah. don't walk over the algal beds they're really slippery Tread on the barnacles. They're tough. They can take it. And yeah, they provide a lot of good grip. Can't turn over stones is another tip I can give you there. Turn over stones. There's always... I, I didn't do that as a kid so much. And then when I started doing it as an adult, the two or three times I've done rock pools as an adult, criminal how little I've done it. Essex is not really rock pools. You get the odd beach pool. I live in the yeah. Mendips. Yeah. <laughs> You're not much have, Yeah, but you, you can get to Pembrokeshire in a couple of hours. I've, I've got to go either Pembroke. all the way up to Yorkshire. Yeah, about four. 
Pimple was just four hours from you. Yeah, about four hours. I suppose it's six hours from me. Yeah, but you can get to Coolmore or Dorset or Devon a lot quicker than that. So you're still not getting any sympathy from me. Yeah. I will get away to Dorset to get any decent rock balls. Right. Well, we have one more announcement at the end, um, which is, well, I'll let you say, Vic, really. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually taking a break for a couple of weeks. I will be back mid-August. So I am basically handing the reins over to a guest presenter. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Um, you're just going to have to wait and see, you know, and... and Please be kind to Neil in my absence. <laughs> so I, I will be back. I'm I'm I will be back mid August, just having a little bit of a break. Yeah, that's kind of kind of yeah. it really. The guest presenter will be familiar. Yes. One little bit of exciting news for me, I've actually released my twenty twenty one Forgotten Little Creatures workshop dates. And these are actually I'm changing them next year and it's not purely photography based so it's actually going to be kind of nature and photography based we're going to go out we're going to see what we can find we're going to identify it i'm going to show you some ways to to take really kind of good in situ pictures of it and yeah so that's that's kind of i've released those now so if you search on forgotten little creatures they're on there they're also on my website at vixpix.com and i've released my may june and august dates i think so there's a whole range on there so uh, if you're interested they're all based in somerset at the moment i'm looking at some exciting opportunities next year to move a little bit further afield but if you're in the area and you fancy it you know check them out and i hopefully shall see you on monsoon well i guess that's it from us well if you do go rock pooling do let us know send us some pictures we'll give you a shout out on the following show and tell us what you found on that kind of thing love to know yeah and if you do go away hope you enjoy it just you know where to find us uk wildlife pod on twitter uk wildlife podcast on facebook and uk wildlife podcast all one word on instagram okay cool. well that's it from us so take care everyone i will see you middle well you'll i you will hear from me from mid-august when i get when i'm back yeah so take care everyone and we'll uh We'll catch you all soon. Yep. See you in the next one. Take care. Bye.